Hello and welcome to a new episode of our uh, podcast, uh, Sianspo's research podcast on environmental transformation. Today we talk about the mobilization of children on environmental issues and their impact on international organizations. And today with me I have Anael Vergonjan, who is a PhD student at Sianspo at our Center for International Studies, CERI. So her doctoral research focuses exactly on this issue, on the inclusion of children in international international climate change policies. She does uh, her work by studying the impact uh, of uh, children's uh, political activity, social activity uh, on international organizations. Anel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello, Sergey. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, so this is something that changed exactly in, uh, in recent years. When we talk about mobilization of children, this is something very, very recent. So if you want to give us a brief history of uh, children mobilization and their inclusion in international climate negotiations and their impact on international organizations, where do we start? Um, I believe we would start very recently, actually, in 2018 for the mobilizations themselves. But the inclusion of children in environmental policies as um, receptors of politics goes back uh, a long time beyond. Um, you can go back all the way to 1992 and the Earth Summit. But focusing on the mobilization of children uh, for climate policies. So in 2018, it all started with uh, Greta Thunberg, as most people know, uh, sitting in front of the Swedish parliament with uh, a cardboard sign reading uh, school strike for climate change. And um, her strike was very mediatized and uh, reached a very wide audience. And uh, soon enough, hundreds and thousands of children uh, joined in uh, on this school strike for climate change. Yes, my own children also participated <laughs> in that. And I was struck uh, by how quickly uh, Greta Thunberg uh, managed to mobilize hundreds of thousands or uh, actually more than a million children mm -hmm. at the international level. Uh, and she already was invited to the UN in 2019, which the, the, the trip which she famously made on a boat. Yep. Uh, so what is so special about uh, this movement that uh, made it so contagious? Um, I believe there were different factors here that were at play, but um, maybe the first one was the very strong mediatization of the movement. It was linked to the fact that it was children mobilizing and young people as well, uh, all the way up to 25. And actually research shows all the way to 80 years old. So it was not only young people, but it was a mobilization that was focused and led by young people. And uh, there were some very young um, protesters uh, down to the age of 10, 12 years old. So I think this attracted a lot of media attention because uh, we don't see them in the political sphere usually. They don't mobilize on issues. Um, and children and people under the age of 18 are not considered as people who are within the political sphere in most Western democracies, at least. All of these young people were learning about the mobilizations very fast, and they were learning uh, about it as well on social media. So uh, social media was a very uh, a real vector for this. Um, most young people were saying that they were invited by a school friend, 
um, or that they had seen the invitation on social media, so on Instagram, on Telegram channels, on Facebook. Um, and that's how they, cho they started to choose to, to join the movement. So for you, it's also an issue of communication, communication technology. As a scholar of mobile broadband internet, I can tell you that <laughs> indeed. Uh, for me as a researcher, it's always a question how we study those uh, things, because normally, and here I speak as a president or chair of uh, Science Post Committee on Research Ethics, it's very hard to think about those issues. Can you actually study people who are not adult? How do you, uh, how do you put in place questionnaires uh, for people below age of consent, mm -hmm. 18 years old? So what, what do researchers do about this? When you say yeah. we saw people 15 years or uh, eight years old, yeah. how do we handle those issues when we want to understand those movements? Well, this is a very, very interesting question and is at the heart of people studying uh, children and childhood is this issue of consent and how do you get access to, to these very specific uh, um, interviews that you might have to do with them. Um, one of the, the suggestions of researchers on this is um, you most, of, most often time you have to go through the adults first. So you will ask for the referent adults um, you will and you will ask uh, and you will have prepared uh, consent forms, um, information forms that inform them about what is going on, what is your research about. Also, very important, um, children adapted in, uh, uh, forms that information forms that they can read and that they can understand themselves, so that they can give uh, enlightened consent. So you have to adapt it, and then you have to 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 give out all the questionnaires, collect the signatures before you can do any interviews. So this makes studying the mobilization themselves quite difficult, actually. And this is one of the reasons why I, I did not actually study the mobilizations themselves, but rather more um, some children who were already in the United Nations system, where they had been invited as child advisors, for example, or where they had invited themselves as uh, child defendants in cases. Um, and this allowed me access to reference adults so that I could ask them for consent. Great, thanks. So after we've established that uh, no children were hurt uh, in the course of your research, we Absolutely. can actually move uh, move to the findings from your research. So uh, Greta Thunberg crosses the Atlantic. She comes in September 2019 to the mm -hmm. UN. What happens at the UN Climate Action Summit? Um, at the UN Climate Action Summit, um, Greta Thunberg actually enlightened the fact that uh, states were not acting on climate change, um, which she had actually um, underlined in lots of speeches before that. Uh, she, she, this was not her first uh, UN speech, actually. Her first UN speech was a year before that, at the COP24 um, in 2018. And that was actually her first UN speech. And that's how she gained a lot of attraction and a lot of meditization as well. And then she gave other speeches at the EU Parliament. Uh, she met Antonio Guterres in May 2019. So in September 2019, she'd already given a lot of speeches. And at that point, in most of those speeches, she actually was enlightening um, the fact that states were not acting on this. But um, there she, she said that not only were they not acting, but this was violating children's rights. On this day, um, herself and 15 other teenagers disclosed that they were uh, giving a petition to the Committee on the Rights of the Child against five different states, which are France, Germany, Argentina, Brazil and Turkey, on the fact that they were not acting on climate change and this was violating children's rights. So in that sense, UN, uh, when UN saw 
the kids uh, talking about climate, UN also started to think about children rights. And so UNICEF, uh, uh, UN Organization for uh, uh, Children, uh, started to act as well. So mm -hmm. uh, what uh, what has been done by the UNICEF? Uh, has, has UNICEF promoted children's rights somehow, launched a campaign? Uh, has anything actually was uh, tangible, anything tangible we can refer to? Well, it's mostly communicative efforts, I would, I would call that, but there are also some tangible efforts, but it's more of a long-term action, and so far it's been very recent, since this is only four years old. Mm -hmm. um, the communication campaign started in uh, 2019 with this petition, and UNICEF launched this campaign, and it was called Climate Crisis is a Child Rights Crisis, and it was arguing that there was a link between children's rights and climate change. Um, it was mostly focused on how natural disasters, uh, such as flooding, uh, storms, could, uh, could harm children because they were particularly vulnerable. Also, um, it would focus on the effects that uh, climate change could have on their health, that it could have in interrupting their education, it could have in um, disrupting their access to their culture, because this is one of the rights of children, is to have access and to learn and to live in the culture that they were born in. Um, so these were some of the, uh, the aspects that were put forward by UNICEF. Concretely in the organization, this meant creating a new team. So they gave, they gave fund to create a climate education, natural disasters team, um, and uh, which would focus on bringing together all of those issues, knowing that they already had an education department, a health department. Um, so somehow the whole question was, what would they add and what would they do that would be specific to them? So this is uh, this uh, interesting perspective. Then, so we see some action, even if the action is just creating another <laughs> unit within uh, international organizations. But of course, what Greta Thunberg has done, she raised awareness uh, big time in mm -hmm. recent years. But if we think about uh, climate action as something that which is needed to protect the future generation, we mm -hmm. can go back, as you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, mm -hmm. uh, more than 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So the grew Harlan Brundtland report, uh, Our Common Future, that was already 87. And that's when she already started to mention uh, future generation and generational justice, equity between generations. So we, the old generation, we destroy the planet and therefore violate uh, the rights of the future generations. So the question of climate change as a generational issue mm -hmm. is not new. As you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, uh, this question was already raised uh, more than 30 years ago when mm -hmm. already in the Our Common Future report or so-called uh, Gru Harlem Brundtland report, uh, we talked about uh, uh, the principle of equity between generations, we, the old generation, we destroy the planet, thus undermining the future for you, the new generation. And so that report already was uh, talking uh, about those issues, of course, in a very different way from what uh, uh, Greta Thunberg is uh, saying now. But then if we go back to that time, mm -hmm. more than 30 years ago, what was the impact on the international organizations and the in the international climate negotiations? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, our common future report, the Brundtland report, actually uh, helped defining sustainable development. It created a framework in which uh, the further international cooperation agreements could be defined and thought. Actually, the idea of uh, not harming future generations was already present in 1972 in, uh, within the Stockholm Declaration. Uh, so at the very beginning of the Environmental International Corporation. In 1987, the Brundtland Report helped uh, set a, a framework for the 1992 negotiations. It mentions future generations, so this creates ground for thinking about children within environmental negotiations. Because if you think about future generations, you have to think about those who are not born yet, or those who are still in the very beginning of their lives, because they will be the generations in two or three, or two or three generations that will still be there. Um, so this is how children came together with environmental issues. But somehow there, there were many times where this, this meeting was done. In 1990, for example, the UNEP, the uh, uh, UN Environmental Organization, uh, decided to, to create a report with UNICEF on the matter of children and the environment. And so they were trying to do some uh, some sort of bricolage. So they were trying to put together some pieces to see where do, do these two issues come together beyond the fact that if we think about future generations, we can see children, but what goes beyond that? So they tried and did a report and then somehow it completely stopped there. There was nothing that happened afterwards. And you can see that several times in the history of international cooperation and international organizations. There are in the in the, in the late 1990s, in the 2000s, there were a lot of programs about education to the environment because this was present in the UN Framework Convention for Climate Change, uh, which was encouraging to give education for climate change because if you want to change the future, you have to educate the people who will live in the future. Um, so there were some things about educating children and the, uh, on environmental issues, but this was mostly confined to UNESCO. This was very limited programs and they were not very inter-organizational and they did not have a very wide reach, uh, specifically within the child protection uh, areas. Um, Again, you also have, at the, in the 2000, you have programs as well that focus on children's health regarding to the environment, because since they are more vulnerable, because they are, their bodies are not completely developed, they tend to be more vulnerable to, to pollution and to effects of the environment on, the, um, on their bodies and on their health. But the same way, these stayed quite confined within the WHO and didn't really have a wide reach in the UNICEF. So what's new today and what's coming with those very recent reports is that these two issues seem to be linked closer and tighter and for longer. Um, I think uh, the other difference that you already mentioned is uh, what is new is children feel their agency. They say we are the actors now because you've talked about our mm -hmm. rights for 30 years, for 50 years, mm -hmm. but you failed. Mm -hmm. And so we want to act. And that creates an interesting tension from a social scientist's perspective, because as we mentioned, children are not uh, adults. They're not uh, yet fully educated, as you mentioned. And in that sense, the tension is there. On one hand, as Greta Thunberg correctly says, I want to know more. I'm not fully educated. Don't listen to me, listen to the scientists. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, the message is, you, the educated guys, you've not done enough, mm -hmm. and so we need to act. 
we don't have the right to vote, but we want the action. And so this political tension which emerges from this uh, division between generations is really, really new. You can mm -hmm. uh, find some examples in history, but in recent history, when we clearly defined the voting age and the suffrage and the idea that children uh, are represented in the political sphere by their parents and not directly, mm -hmm. that is actually something, something very new. But before talking about this, let's talk uh, briefly about education. Mm -hmm. One of the big uh, uh, challenges in educated children, something that you've just mentioned, mm -hmm. is that we want to tell children about climate change, about mm -hmm. the science of climate change, but they are not adults. We don't want to scare them. We don't want to create the uh, uh, ecological panic. We want to avoid anxiety. So the question is, how do we do that? Can we can we succeed in educating children, but not traumatizing their uh, uh, their well-being, their 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 ability to live a happy life without creating a depression in uh, among our kids. What do we do? Um, although young people are really reporting on the fact that there they, there is eco anxiety, etc., this usually comes from themselves having educated themselves. So not from environmental education that they would have received outside. This is because very often environmental education is very softened because there is the will not to harm children. That is because there are different representation of children that are also present within the Convention on the Rights of the Child and within international politics and national politics as well that are cohabitating together. Um, there are visions of children as innocent children who are vulnerable, who are potential victims and uh, who don't really know about the world. And this is one of the representations that um, made us soften somehow uh, the way that we will have the, the environmental education for them. Uh, but there is a confronting vision, which is the evolving child, and it's the idea that children are autonomous political individuals and that they are just uh, forming themselves to become fully fully, in, full individuals, but they, there is a necessity for empowerment, there is a necessity to let them have a voice in the, in the action, and specifically a voice on things that matter to them uh, in particular. And with climate change, what is new is that they are claiming something that matters to all of society and to adults as well as maturing to them in particular because very oftentimes participation of children will only be uh, around the issues of education, the issue of how do you want, it would be at a very local level and it would be about um, what do you want to eat for school or what new infrastructures should we have around the school, but it would very much revolve around a small perimeter. And here they are asking for a voice at a very large uh, place and at a very large space. So this is something that is very quite um, new about this. And uh, this is one of the ways that uh, environmental education is somehow changing here because um, very, for a very long time, children were only perceived in this innocent, uh, as these innocent people that you would have to protect. And so if you only have to protect them, you need to inform them, but you don't really need to inform them that much since you want to protect them from knowing about the worst. And you, you can see in some reports of the United Nations, you would have suggestions to avoid doom and gloom scenarios, to not tell them about the worst catastrophes. That's also because we don't really know what's going to happen. So in front of incertitude, we consider that they would not be able to manage the incertitude that we already as adults have a hard time managing. 
But what children are asking through this mobilization and uh, through these recent things is that they're asking to be agents and they're asking to be fully informed because they have informed themselves and they're saying, we, we did it. Now we, we know about these things. So now let everyone know and let everyone know about the, the full thing and all the different scenarios that are coming and what types of action we would need to have and, and what, what that would change. But uh, for, for, for this to happen, you have to consider them as uh, autonomous political individuals, which so far was not really the main representation of them on the international stage. So children, uh, children are represented as uh, autonomous political agents, uh, and uh, they are often presented as uh, representatives of future generations, mm -hmm. even the generations who are not yet born. And uh, the, the argument here is that they will suffer for more from climate change than the other living generations, uh, mostly the adults. So this is an interesting, interesting question. To what extent uh, uh, they feel the sense of urgency more than the adults? So one explanation is, as you mentioned, children inform themselves, and sometimes uh, they inform themselves on social media, which, as we know, are more likely to disseminate uh, negative news, disseminate the uh, narratives which are more apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. This is just the nature of and business mm -hmm. model of social media. But uh, basically, what we also see is that even the adults now feel the urgency because the climate change is happening faster than we thought 30 years ago mm -hmm. or 10 years ago. But still, to what extent uh, this uh, argument that children are really the uh, people to listen to because for them the urgency is the greatest, What, uh, to what extent this argument makes an impact on international organization? To what extent it mm -hmm. is this argument that children have to be listened uh, to because they represent the future of this world. Mm -hmm. They will suffer most uh, from the climate change. To what extent uh, international organizations understand this and that has some tangible implications? Um, well, beyond the generational debate, um, I believe that uh, there, is, there is in fact, the, they, they were in fact more invited and uh, very well represented because they give a visible vision of the future. Uh, when you see a young person, you can see on their face that they are young and From this, you can induce very easily that uh, they are the future. And this comes from a third representation of children, which is called the imminent child. And it's the idea that children represent the future of humanity and that childhood is just um, a transitory phase through to ad adulthood. Actually, this representation was quite contradicted uh, during the during this whole sequence of mobilization of children and climate change because uh, it was the picture of them as a man and child that gave them access to international organizations, in particular to the climate change uh, organizations, because they would give them a podium and then there would be somehow very little listening to them speaking. And when speaking, they would talk about doom and gloom, but they would also talk about um, IPCC reports, for example, because many of the young activists have actually read the IPCC reports, um, which is quite fascinating for sometimes a very young age. Um, but what everyone would just, everyone would not so much listen, but would rather see. And this is a very typical thing seen. Uh, this is a very typical thing um, in the literature on children and international relations. There is a famous article that's called Seen But Not Heard, because children most often are uh, included 
as people that you can see, but not people as you can hear. And this is a different, and this is a matter of agency, actually. It's the idea that, the idea that people, uh, children could be agents in politics, just like the adults, is not very is not very accepted by adults because it's confronting with the other perceptions of children that we already have. So um, that's something that was actually included by the international organizations who on climate change, they would have children come to the podium and they would not really listen to them. But then this would be also contradicting because um, in, in their speeches as well, because the children themselves would claim to be the future and they would claim their place at the table as being the future because this is a very easy way to get the adults attention because this is something that they can be very legitimate about contrarily to scientific sayings where they can be uh, redeemed and put for uh, put forward put on the side because they they are not educated enough they are not completely grown but when they say i am the future generation then they can be very very much here but this was contradicting with the with the way they were represented in international politics until then because until then they were only people who were being protected and very young vulnerable suffering people who would have to be protected who didn't really have a voice and uh, and most of all who would be the children of now not adults of tomorrow, but children of now, so just the vulnerable people. So there was a contradiction and a tension between the protection of children and uh, the fact that they wanted to be empowered as adults of tomorrow, because there was not really a space on the international stage for them to be the adults of tomorrow and still have a, a seat at the table. Right, you're talking about this uh, condescendence, uh, this uh, narrative where even climate skeptics cannot say we don't like the children. We started we started this uh, conversation where you said this is such an important movement because mediatization of uh, children's political activities, mediatization of Greta Thunberg strikes, school strikes, um, and Fridays for Future makes it impossible to neglect and impossible to criticize. Even such climate skeptics as Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin would be quite positive, saying this is a nice and sincere and honest girl. But they would also add this condescending statement, which we hear often in the debate uh, on populism. Mm -hmm. uh, populism is something that we will not discuss in this season, but in the next season. But in populism, experts usually say populists are against the elites because uh, they use this division between simple people who don't understand the complexity of the world and the elites who are responsible, who manage the world. And mm -hmm. that's exactly the narrative Vladimir Putin would use mm -hmm. when he talks about Greta Thunberg. He would say that she's nice, she wants to change the world in the right direction, but she's poorly informed, she doesn't understand the complexity of the modern world. I, adult, I understand this complexity, and that's why we cannot move as fast as she wants. So this condescendence is there, but... Uh, what you're saying is suggesting that in the last few years, we already have a real impact on how international organizations think about this. And indeed, children are, are becoming political agents. Mm -hmm. And this is something which is completely new. 
Is that right? Uh, the fact that children are political agents is not completely new. It's been going on for 30 years since the adoption of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, they were, which includes the idea that uh, children have a voice and should have a say in, in social and political activities. Uh, but it's been mostly implemented at the national or local level, and it's quite new on the international stage. Although there was one, uh, one time before, in the negotiations around... Uh, child labor, actually, there were some child laborers organizations that uh, were set up and where children who were working asked for different policies from the international organizations from the one that were being uh, proposed and discussed. So, yeah. So, um, so one of the things which uh, people who are expressing this idea that we need to protect the children, mm -hmm. but we don't want to give them the voice, I would also say that, well, children are the front for the other generations. So we talk about how uh, children's uh, climate activism actually helps other generations mm -hmm. because we all suffer from climate change, even older people. And that happens really, really fast in front of our eyes. The climate skeptics would say children are manipulated by their parents, by older activists. Mm -hmm. So whenever we listen to children, that is actually a voice of some other interest groups which speaks using the mediatized that's the argument of climate skeptics to what yeah. extent to what extent we can say that uh, adults and children can be manipulated or non manipulated in the same way it's uh, i think it's, it's a, very difficult to assess honestly mm -hmm. it's hard to to say whether children are more or less manipulated than adults um i say i think this is all uh, revolving around the debate about uh, children as evolving people and people in development and in learning. And this is all of the specificity of studying children is that under the same idea and umbrella of this word of children, you have people who are ranging from the age of zero to 18 years old. So, of course, children under seven years old, it would be very hard to know how much they wrote themselves and how much they were thinking themselves. Later on, it's hard as well, but you can have more doubts because uh, they can express ideas, they can formulate them. Um, research shows that they do have political ideas that they don't always articulate, but uh, that sometimes they do when they educate themselves, when they're interested in a topic. And this was very interesting because this was really what you could see around the teenagers who were actually uh, protesting against climate change. So children are political agents, and the yep. question is, where do we stop? So climate is a is a policy area where there is a very strong temporal dimension. Mm -hmm. So we can indeed argue that uh, what happens to adults and children in terms of climate change affects them differently, as you've just argued. But where do we stop? Shall we lower voting age? To what extent? Uh, where do we put... Uh, uh, the, uh, put the limit and which policy areas uh, we define for uh, participation of children in politics? Well, this is a very wide question that has been very much discussed since um, ever since actually the creation of this Convention on the Rights of the Child. Because as soon as you consider children as political agents, you have to consider to what extent can they be political agents? Can they vote, as you suggested? Or should they just have a say? But what kind of say? Should it be uh, just some sort of advice or should it be a little bit more? Should it be an advice on how to include them 
or sh uh, and only on matters that relate to them or sh can it be an advice on more broader issues um, these were discussed at the convention on the rights of the child and they were discussed even to set an, an international age limit for for childhood because Again, this age limit is not the same from one country to another, but more interestingly, it's not the same from nationally from one policy to the next. Uh, once you started to talk about uh, your uh, views on uh, what children should be able to do, if you were the secretary general or president or prime minister in the country, uh, how would you treat uh, children and their rights to participate in politics and in particular in climate politics, if that depended on you personally, Anel? Um, I believe I would include them when there is inclusion of citizens uh, in the same way and on an equal manner. Uh, you have seen in France there has been this the Citizen Convention for Climate Change. Um, there were some young citizens, but I think it was only uh, down to the age of 18. Maybe it was 16, but I'm not sure. Uh, and I think you can go uh, even more down below. And you could collect the voices of children at that level and have them formulate uh, propositions for policies. And then the parliament can vote on it, can decide whether this is relevant or not. But I think they should inform the debate in a similar manner as other citizens and other People which compose civil society should be included um, or included already. Yeah, that's a that's a great su suggestion. Next season, when we talk about uh, democracy, populism, and autocracy, we'll definitely talk about deliberative democracy, citizens' assemblies, conventions, mm -hmm. which are indeed important for overcoming the gap between citizens, ordinary citizens, and the elites. And a lot of people would argue this is the uh, tool which can help help us overcome the populism threat uh, to democracies. Uh, so that would be that would be a practical solution to involve children in politics including in, in uh, policies on climate and uh, mitigating mitigating climate change. So th thank you very much, uh, Neil, for this uh, fascinating discussion. This is all for today, but uh, stay tuned. We'll talk more about environmental transformation and other issues that Sciences researchers are working on in the future episodes. Science. Science. Science.